from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. And she said, Ridley, what are you doing in my park? <laughs> and I started running, and I don't think I stopped till I reached Indiana. I was walking around Walt's office, and there was this just creepy human head in a big bell jar. Excuse me, wait, what? <laughs> exactly. And then the creatives say, well, well, Mr. Disney, sir, if we did that, we, we feel then the sky is going to look wrong. And, and all these notes of every little cell, every little detail of making Sleeping Beauty, it just shocked me. New York Times bestselling author Ridley Pearson has written more than 50 suspense and young adult adventure novels. He's the author of the Kingdom Keeper series, and the former longtime St. Louis resident has a star on the St. Louis Walk of Fame in the Del Mar Loop. Pearson is hosting an in-person and virtual launch event for his latest book this upcoming Tuesday evening at Left Bank Books. The book is Cautionary Tales, a collection of scary stories starring favorite Disney villains. It takes classic Disney stories and puts a unique spin on what many fans know and love, and it gives newer House of Mouse fans more magic to discover. For more, here's producer Maya Norfleet. Ridley, your book, Cautionary Tales, pairs classic Disney villains with two new protagonists, teenagers Billy Templeton and Tim Walters, in a time and place present-day Disney Studios in Burbank, California. Who are Billy and Tim, and what are these kiddos doing at Disney? Billy and Tim are two characters I wish I were. They are the sons and daughter of Disney Imagineers and Disney creatives who work in that Burbank facility, which has numerous sound stages that all your favorite Disney films have been shot on. And they have the huge executive tower, and they have... Uh, a building called the Frank Wells Building, and the Disney Archives are in there, among other things. And the Disney Archives are the central focus of Cautionary Tales, where this son and daughter of different Disney execs are spending time, which I wish I were, (laughs) and they wander into the archives and get in serious trouble. But it's all to our benefit because we get eight wonderful short stories out of it. And when I was reading the book, I was imagining I used to also work in the archives, way less cool than Disney. It was for a museum. But I just imagine like these really huge like shelves filled with stuff. Is it really that cool in person as you depicted in the book? It is so cool in person. At that time, There was an upstairs archives of all the props you can imagine, from flubber to witches' brooms to umbrellas from Mary Poppins. Um, Those are all managed by a guy named Kevin. And it's just shelf after shelf after shelf, like a library, but stacked with props that you recognize. And on the ground floor are the Disney archives that cover all the books and printed matter, art, and all of that. And um, Becky Klein, who manages all of Disney archives, has allowed me into the back room there. And just as you're describing, it's those roll-away giant library shelvings. 
and you can, when they open them up, you can walk between them, then they close that one, and you can walk between the next, and it's just row after row after row after row, and there are books and notes. In fact, there is one incredible, incredible fact of Disney that I never knew. In walking through those shelves, Maya, I looked to my left, and there were about eight black three-ringed binders, and every one of them said Sleeping Beauty 1, Sleeping Beauty 2, Sleeping Beauty 3. What? And, and I asked Becky, what on earth are these binders? Are these all the drafts of the script? And she said, oh, no, Ridley, I think you will find them very interesting. So I pulled one off the shelf and opened it up, and they were the carbon copy typed out notes of everything everyone said in each of the meetings as they were devising, creating, and finally shooting Sleeping Beauty. Wow. So you have Walt Disney in the room saying to one of his creatives, I I really think this scene should be a little more green, a little more soft green. And then the creatives say, well, well, Mr. Disney, sir, if we did that, we we feel then the sky is going to look wrong. And and all these notes of every little cell, every little detail of making Sleeping Beauty, it just shocked me that, for one, that they had these, but two, that back then, Disney had thought to bring a secretary into the room and keep verbatim notes on everything said. So they have records of all these movies being made going back uh, to the to the 1940s. That, it's amazing. That's incredible. So you're telling me Kevin and Becky are real people? Like in the book, they're real? They're real, Kevin and Becky. They've helped me on all the Kingdom Keeper books and now on Cautionary Tales. Um, I just interviewed Becky at something called D23, which is this big Disney convention of 20,000 people. And um, it was so great. I, I asked her if I could just talk about how she became the head of Disney Archives, and her story was incredible, can as you, you can imagine. Can you explain real quick? Because I've read the book, of course, but our audience may be like, who's Kevin and Becky? Like, give us a little bit about <laughs> Kevin and Becky. <laughs> so Kevin and Becky, both in the book and real life, manage different parts of Disney Archives. Disney Archives has grown to an enormous size. When Becky first got there, there were basically two people working in there. There's, I think, 28 people now. And Disney Archives keeps track of the history of Disney. Uh, That may mean, in fact, they have Walt Disney's plane in a warehouse. They um, They have the VW Bug from the 60s in the flying VW Bug in a warehouse. They have all the props they have found over the years. And they have just hundreds of thousands of words in volumes, whether it's my books. My books were in there, Maya. It it made me cry. (laughs) I looked to my left and said, wait, my books are in the Disney archives? Uh, But in my story, the two kids who are a little bit bored in the afternoon are really good friends with Becky and Kevin, who run the archives. And when Becky and Kevin are off having lunch, Tim wanders into the back and finds the mirror from Sleeping Beauty and ends up getting sucked into the mirror and brought into the short stories that fill up cautionary tales. And tell me more about because that was one of the coolest things to me of how you thread so many different Disney stories together. Can you give me like 
even the there was an origin story that really grabbed me and even had me Googling to be sure, like, wait, am I remembering the story right? Can you give us, like, an example of how you did that? My editor, Lauren, and I um, decided first on either the villains or the heroines or the heroes that I would deal with and, um, and ones that I would be excited to write. So, for instance, there's, there's a little bit of the Aladdin world in there. There's the, um, what I think is Disney's most evil creature, which is Chernabog. And we hear of an early story involve, uh, involving Chernabog. I have always been interested in that beating heart that's in a box in Sleeping Beauty. Hmm. So there's one called the Huntsman, and we learn about that heart. And then I just couldn't resist having, instead of Beauty and the Beast, having Billy and the Beast. Yes. And in Billy and the Beast, I've reversed the story. So something has happened, which you will read about, that means Beauty and the Beast isn't going to occur unless Billy and Tim can change the present. If they can change the present, then the story we all love can still happen. But if they can't, it's going to fail. So it was just ideas like that. Like, what, how could I take something that's iconically Disney and spin it to make it a little bit creepy and, and a lot of action and fun? So you mentioned this book of all the notes that literal Walt Disney, the, the man, had someone type up if they were going through Sleeping Beauty. So is that how you came up with a lot of these alternative storylines and plots or did they just say like, go for it, go crazy? In creating the plots, I would always run my ideas by Lauren. And yes, trips to the archives influenced them all. Maybe not specifically line by line, but when you are in the archives and you get surrounded by Disney history, uh, it's this rich, deep feeling like you're walking in footsteps. They, for instance, they let me into Walt's office and I was walking around Walt's office and there was this just creepy human head in a big bell jar. Okay, excuse, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> exactly. So I turned to Becky and said, now I'm in Walt Disney's office and this thing looks like a melting face. And she explained this long history that went back to Walt had at one point sought out evil creatures from other cultures. And a Japanese gentleman um, sent him a, a real life model of one of the creepiest villains in cultural Japan myths. And he thought it was so weird that he left it on his shelf all the time. And this thing kind of stared back at him. You know, Walt had this, uh, uh, not as if I was his best friend, because I never knew Walt Disney, but he had <laughs> this both whimsy about him, um, and he had a dark side that allowed him to create characters like Chernabog. After he created Chernabog for Fantasia, the wonderful Disney movie that has no dialogue in it, just, just uh, Stravinsky, mm -hmm. um, he said that Chernabog was the most evil creature he had ever imagined in that Chernabog eats human souls. So in my Kingdom Keepers series, and now again in Cautionary Tales, I just had to play around with Chernabog because that is one creepy creature. 
I'm talking to Ridley Pearson, author of Cautionary Tales, a collection of scary stories starring favorite Disney villains. So... (laughs) Um, Look out. (laughs) So I have a confession to share with you. I didn't really grow up with Disney. Um, Outside of the Lion King and Aladdin, I had very little Mm. knowledge of these villains before reading your book. And it wasn't until lately when I, you know, I started having nieces and nephews that I started looking into Disney and more contemporary Disney stories, start seeing more relatable uh, scenes in Disney. Absolutely. What's something that would surprise a traditional Disney fan and someone who's just now getting into Disney like myself? About cautionary tales, I think it will be utterly surprising and, and that's one of the objects of my writing the short stories and this connective story. I've prided myself in my Kingdom Keepers series of showing you behind the scenes in the parks after dark. Disney was good enough to invite me in and have me toured by Imagineers 30 times in writing this series. I'm still writing the series. So I go on rides like Small World when the dolls are shut down, the lights are off, and there's no music playing. And adults and young readers get a huge kick out of, at least from the emails I get, out of experiencing what I experience in those rides. So in cautionary tales, I wanted to look at the normal story that we know and then find a way to bend it, if you will, and enter it from a different side of the story so it's somewhat familiar but utterly unfamiliar. And I hope that that will engage readers in a a new and fresh way because they really don't know what's coming. Like you said, you've worked with Disney for a lot of projects um, around the Disney villains. Was there a villain that you enjoyed writing the most? There's a, a villain that haunts me the most, and that's Maleficent. I have written about so many Disney villains, but when I write about Maleficent, I get the hairs on the back of my neck go up. Hmm. Um, I get cold sweats. I am actually genuinely afraid of Maleficent. She is said to be the most villainous of sort of the human villains in Disney. Uh, Becky Klein, when I interviewed her, the, the director of the archives, said that she can still considers Maleficent um, or the evil queen, uh, they're kind of hand in hand as the two most evil. They, they deal in vanity and jealousy, but they aren't afraid to do anything to maintain that vanity that they have. Was there a villain that you found the most difficult to write about? So I was once invited to um, Disney Hollywood Studios in Walt Disney World for one of my research trips. I was gonna go in at four in the morning when the rides are all shut down. There's very few people in there, if any. Mm -hmm. And an Imagineer and I were wandering around backstage, uh, which means the part that people can't go to in Disney Hollywood Studios, in Walt Disney World. And this Imagineer knew of my history with the Kingdom Keepers and all the research I'd done and the books I'd written. And he excused himself to use the men's room and told me to meet him just around the next corner. 
And you know, Maya, I I, <laughs> I should have been smarter than I am, <laughs> but I wasn't very smart. And it was 4.30 in the morning by that point or something. So I go, I say, okay, great, I'll meet you around there. Well, you know, they never leave your side, so I should have been suspicious. <laughs> but I went up and I walked around the corner and there was Maleficent, all six feet of her in her robe, in her full outfit, with her green skin and her pointed chin. And she said, Ridley, what are you doing in my park? <laughs> and I started running, and I don't think I stopped till I reached Indiana. You really ran away just, from her? I was scared out of my shoes. And then I came back and gave her a hug and uh-huh. thanked her. But I am not I am not a Maleficent fan, and they knew it, and the Imagineers got her to come in and scare the wits out of me, and it just shows you how they, they all sort of have a wonderful sense of humor about them. So she's like your so favorite? I would keep, exactly. I would keep Maleficent up there as my favorite to write about, and also the one I'm the most afraid of. Got it. And then cautionary... She's complex. She is. She needs, she needs therapy. Did the Angelina Jolie movie change your perception of her at all? Did you watch it? I didn't. I, I actually, this is a horrible thing to say because I love Disney, but I walked out. I, um, I, I'm too close to Maleficent that when they started and they had clipped her wings and done all that, I leaned over to my wife and said, so I can't see this. And, oh. I, and I left wow. because it's just a different vision of Maleficent than I have. So, that is you know, fair. I'm sure it was terrific. I know how hugely popular they are. What do I know? But it just, it didn't fit my knowledge of Maleficent, so I left. I think you have a very fair, like, reasoning, though. Like, not everyone gets to write with Disney and be so close to characters. So I think you get to do that and it'd be okay. I think I just lost my job, Maya. Oh, no! No. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> but I love Maleficent. That's the only reason I left, is we have a different understanding. Exactly. Uh, Cautionary Tales also features wonderful illustrations by Abigail Larson, who's listed Tim Burton and Guillermo del Toro as artistic influences. What was it like working with her and seeing your stories have images put to them? It's such a great question. She's an award-winning illustrator, and I have written some graphic novels where you're interactive with the illustrator. In this instance, I was not. Disney had her read the short stories and then start sending us sketches. And Maya, I about fell out of my chair. Uh-huh. She is so good. And it's, it's the most illustrated book I've ever written in that Abigail has illustrations in the margins of all the pages. Mm-hmm. She imagines Tim and Billy the perfect look for both of them. She imagines like there's a picture at some point of the evil queen in the mirror and you practically have to slam the book shut. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's so, so good. And it's, you know, it's one thing to voice a story from your mind into words. And both in graphic novels and working with Abigail, it's so incredible to see these gifted artists take your words and bring them into physical imagery. While I've been reading this book, and like I said, I wasn't quite into Disney before, but as I've been reading this, I've been talking to my friends who are moms and different friends that are educators about this book. I'm sure you're aware of the conflicts happening in school libraries and public libraries about what stories are appropriate and what stories aren't. Um, One of my colleagues that's right next to me, Kate Grumke, just wrote a piece about graphic novels being pulled from some school shelves in our listening area. As an author who specifically has written for young audiences, 
What's your reaction to this moment in time? We're in a very interesting moment in time, and it's affected my work as well as others. I think we all must be sensitive to each other. I think sometimes the pendulum swings a little too far. I don't think banning books is ever an answer. I think it's a crime. Hmm. And that uh, if people are worried about the content of a book, please don't give your child that book. And if parents aren't paying attention to the books their kids are checking out of the library, is that on the library or is that on the parent? Hmm. So I, I think there's an awful lot of angles to this, but I just think it's a shame when we start shutting down freedom of the press. Um, and I think we really have to watch it because what's next? Uh, that said, I don't think um, material that's improper or inappropriate has a place in public or school libraries without some kind of warning on the book or being in a special section. Uh, I understand those concerns. I don't want to be an idiot about this. But banning books is a bad place for a society to start. That's author Ridley Pearson talking about his new book, Cautionary Tales, a collection of scary stories starring favorite Disney villains. He'll be at Left Bank Books this upcoming Tuesday for a book launch event. The in-person and virtual event starts at 6. Reservations are requested. We have a link at stlonair.show. Pearson is a former longtime resident of St. Louis who has his very own star on the St. Louis Walk of Fame in the Del Mar Loop. He spoke earlier this week with producer Maya Norfleet. episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Audio editing by Emily Woodbury. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.